Our scripture is taken from Romans 12, 1 to 2. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may, be, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Most of what I have to share with you this morning is a story, a little bit unusual. It's a quite remarkable one, but to set it up, let's start with some questions that have to do with our ability to know what we know. And we'll begin with an easy one. What does a gorgeous sunset, a slice of pizza, a Chopin prelude, a baby's silky smooth skin, and the rotten egg stench of sulfur, sulfur dioxide all have in common. Anybody? The five senses. Yes, they are specific aspects of reality that we know and experience through one of our five senses. We see sunsets using sight. We don't taste them. The Chopin requires hearing. And although you can see pizza, you know it's really all about the taste, right? And a baby's perfect skin requires touch. Sulfur dioxide is neither visible nor loud, but one little whiff will wrinkle up your whole face. The brain is the amazing part that interprets reality, the world as we know it, or that we think we know. And everything that the brain knows comes to it through one or more of the five gateways that we know as our senses. Sight, sound, taste, touch, and smell. Ears, wonderfully sensitive organs capable of detecting minute variations in air pressure. Skin, embedded with tiny devices capable of detecting variations in temperature or pressure. Eyes, Organs sensitive to electromagnetic radiation in the visible portion of the spectrum. Our senses are the bridges, and they are the only physical bridges, I might add, that connect our perfectly isolated brains to the reality that exists in the great big complex world all around us. Our senses are the feeders of raw data into the computer of the mind. So what is, what is it really that does the hearing? Is it the ear or is it the brain or is it both of them? Scientists have been posing answers to questions like that for a long time and philosophers, you know, ponder whether or not there's a noise when the tree falls, but there's no ear slash brain around to hear it. Of course, there are some, in fact, 
actually quite a few aspects of reality that are absolutely undetectable to our five senses. For example, think of carbon monoxide gas. It makes no noise, it leaves no scent, it has neither taste nor feel, and it is perfectly invisible, but it is very real, and it will kill you. We are aware of it because of its effects, the effects it has on other things that we can detect, like the capacity of human blood to carry oxygen. So we make transducers, which are mechanical sensors that tell us when it's around by transforming its invisible energy into something visible, like a red light or a beeping alarm bell. Now think about this. How much of reality, like carbon monoxide, lies beyond the ability of our five human senses to detect? If we can't detect it, and we can't build a transducer to sense it for us, does that mean that it's not real? Is it possible there could be reality all around us that we are not even aware of because we're just not able to sense it? Imagine for a moment there's a thing called unsensed reality. We can't hear it or see it or smell it, but it's every bit as real as carbon monoxide gas, and there are no instruments able to detect it. Then imagine, by some quirky circumstance, we were suddenly able to acquire the ability to sense it. How would our brains interpret it? Or could we even interpret it? Would our brains be able to process this kind of heretofore undetectable and therefore thoroughly alien data, or would they simply shift into overload and say, that does not compute? These questions have enormous relevance for our culture today, and they have enormous bearing on this thing that we call faith. Faith, Paul says in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, is the evidence of things not seen. And I think we would be safe here in adding, faith is the evidence of things not heard, nor smelled, nor tasted either. Faith is the evidence of things we have no human ability to detect or measure with our man-made sensors. Faith is the ability to perceive unsensed reality. Faith is almost like a sixth sense, like a transducer capable of directly sensing things beyond the physical realm. Again, if human beings were suddenly to get some brand new ability, for example, the ability to hear microwave radiation, how would we make sense of that? Or could we even make sense of that? You might think such a question is impossible to answer, but what if it's not? What if we could answer it by answering another one that's not so impossible? What about people with sensory deficits who have learned to understand reality based on severely limited sensory input, and then they experience a kind of healing, like a deaf person who is given cochlear implants, 
a person who has never heard a sound before and suddenly hears a Chopin prelude in all its, its glorious nuance and sound and beauty. Does such a person somehow know this new audio data is Chopin and that it's beautiful? Is this alien data streaming into her brain? Do, does she know what that even is? And even more intriguing, how does this alien noise she is hearing gel with everything else she has known and decided about reality up to that point? Now let's switch the comparison. What if it's not hearing we are talking about? What if it's sight? Computer designers know that what really chews up microprocessor bandwidth is graphics. If all we needed computers for was email, word processing, and spreadsheets, they'd be smaller than wristwatches. But when you start adding pictures, and then high-resolution pictures, and then moving pictures, and then high-resolution, fast-moving pictures, you need huge amounts of both memory and processing power. It shouldn't surprise us that the human brain works the same way. Some experts say that fully a third of the cortical processing power of the human brain is spent interpreting raw data that streams in through the eyes. Sight, in other words. And sight plays an enormous role in our understanding of the world. With all that in mind now, let me share with you a fascinating story. On a sunny spring morning in 1957, Ora Jean May sent her two small children, four-year-old Diane and three-year-old Mike, out to play. Mike and Diane decided they wanted to make mud pies. Mike needed a container to mix the mud, so he headed for the garage where he spied a quart mason jar, perfect for the task. But the, but the jar was filled with a hard, dry powder, so it would have to be cleaned. He took the jar to a cement horse-watering trough near the garage and plunged it under the water. A plume of gas began to rise from the jar, and then it suddenly exploded. When Mike's mother ran to the backyard and found her little boy writhing in a pool of blood, glass shards filling his face, she was distraught. The mason jar had blown up. On the way to the hospital, Origene pleaded with God that her son might live, but after hours of work, the surgeons came out and said he probably wouldn't. But Mike May was no ordinary little boy, and he didn't die. He remained in the hospital for three months, his head swathed in bandages, and when they finally came off, he could no longer see. He had been blinded. 100%, couldn't even see light and shadow. It wasn't the glass that had destroyed Mike's eyes, it was the chemical that had been in the jar, calcium carbide, carelessly left behind in the garage by the house's former owner. It took a year for Mike to heal enough to get out of bed. A social worker advised Origene to get blindness and mobility training for him. The following year, her doctor told her to think about sending Mike away to the school, to a school for the blind. That's what happened to blind people, blind kids in the 50s. 
But that's not what happened to Mike May. His mother had already had more than her share of adversity and adventure before Mike was even born, and she decided Mike would go to normal kindergarten and be involved in normal activities. When the social worker asked her what activities she considered to be normal, Origene said, all of them. At home, Mike climbed out of his recovery bed and into his new world. It didn't look like black to him. It just looked like nothing. He learned to climb kitchen counters and run down toy-littered hallways, a constant ballet of tripping and colliding he hardly seemed to notice in his excitement to get to the next place. Mike felt no surprise or anger at not being able to see. To his four-year-old brain, he just was who he was. On his first day of school, his mom handed him a lunch pail and put him on the bus. When the class stood up for the pledge, someone had to orient him in the right direction. On the playground, he walked in front of kids on the swings and got bashed in the head. Instead of crying, he asked himself the question, where did that come from? At the end of his first day at school, his mom listened as he described the day and then told him, Mike, that sounds like a lot of fun. Every bit of the world thrilled Mike. Everywhere he, wor everywhere he went, he ran. And for a blind person running, there are a million things to crash into. Mike crashed into all of them. But he thrived in kindergarten. At the end of the year, the school district told Origene that Mike would not be allowed to enroll in first grade. So Origene searched until she found one of the very few schools in the U.S. at that time that mainstreamed blind kids with sighted kids, and she moved her family across the country to there. At home, Mike was not exempt from family chores. He was expected to pull his full weight, and he did. He learned to vacuum. He learned to cook. He developed an ability to remember precisely where he had been in a room or a building or a playground, to remember precisely how he had gotten there and how to get there again. On the playground, he learned to play kickball, and he became a, 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 a killer competitor in hide-and-seek. When he fell down, he crashed into things, and he bled. But he wasn't afraid of blood, so he kept trying, and he kept learning. And then came the day when Mike learned to ride a bicycle. He crashed for two days straight until his legs and arms were covered in scrapes and bruises and blood. He asked his mom how she thought he was doing, and she said, Mike, I think you're getting there. Eventually, Mike mastered the bicycle. He did it by gauging the feel of the wind and the sounds of the tires and listening for directions from his friends who rode in front. Without knowing it, Mike was developing a very acute sense of hearing even being able to no navigate complex physical situations using a kind of echolocation. He learned how to tell precisely where his classmates were looking by how the sound came from their mouths and bounced off the walls. At school, his resource teacher was every bit as hard as, on him as his mother was. She allowed him to get by with nothing. Mike, Mike chose not to hang out with the other blind kids. Instead, he did, he did everything with the sighted kids, and they became his friends. 
He made up his mind he could learn to do anything they could do. And to that, he set his life. In fifth grade, Mike applied for the safety patrol. Students who did crossing guard duty for younger students crossing the streets. And of course, they told him no. It's impossible for a blind person to be a crossing guard. But Mike and his resource teacher appealed it all the way to the school board. And they wanted to know, how can you do that? By sound, he told them, and then he proceeded to demonstrate. Mike won his appeal, and he became a school crossing guard. He never lost a student. Near the end of grade school, Mike asked his mom for permission to ride his bike by himself to downtown Walnut Creek. It was a three-mile trip, one way, in traffic. Origene's stomach turned with visions of ambulances and mangled limbs. Every maternal instinct screamed no. But she heard herself saying, it's important to stay on the right side of the road, Mike, and pull over when you hear traffic. And if it gets too hard, don't be afraid to turn back. But she knew he would not turn back. Standing by the mailbox in her cul-de-sac driveway, Origene fought back tears as she watched her blind 11-year-old son pedal away and disappear around the corner into traffic. Three hours later, he was back. She fought the urge to ask him how the trip had gone because she didn't want to make it seem like a big deal because to Mike, it wasn't a big deal. And that's exactly how Mike May lived his life as a blind person. He maintained a 3.5 GPA average. He became a champion wrestler. When a friend introduced him to ham radio, he decided that he needed to have a set, and so he built his own. He also needed a transmission tower, so he built one of those too, climbing 80 feet up in the air to assemble it piece by piece as his mom watched and bit her lip from the kitchen window. In college, Mike discovered three things, the thrill of business, the thrill of skiing, and the thrill of girls. With a friend, he learned to ski, and skiing became a passion. He majored in electrical engineering because, he said, there's not very many blind electrical engineers. And he began to, his first serious relationship. Eventually, he, he succeeded at all three. In the world of skiing, he became a champion. With a sighted friend, he pioneered new techniques of downhill skiing. Normally, the blind skier skis first, with the sighted skier following and shouting directions from behind. But that's necessarily slow because the sighted skier has to stay behind. Mike and his partner mixed it up, with his partner going ahead and Mike staying right on his tail, purely by means of listening to the sound of his partner's skis. That way he could go as fast as his partner chose to go. All the conventional wisdom of the day, including at the Olympic National Committee, told them it was much too dangerous. Mike said, well, ski in the old way is just much too slow. So they did it Mike's way. In the world of engineering, Mike became an entrepreneur. He formed a group of partners, and they invented stuff. Stuff like an electronic gadget that used lasers instead of needles to read grooves in vinyl records, a technology that eventually found its way into what we now call CD players and DVD players. Along the way, Mike mastered the use of both the cane and the guide dog, and he went everywhere with confidence. His secret was he was not afraid to get lost 
And so he was not afraid to go any place. His business took him all over the world, and when he traveled, he always traveled alone. In the world of relationships, Mike eventually found the woman with whom he would share his life. He and Jennifer were married, and they had two boys. Mike May's life was near picture perfect when, on February 11, 1999, he made his way to the dais in the ballroom of San Francisco's St. Francis Hotel. He was there to present the prestigious Kay Gallagher Award for Mentoring the Blind, an award that he had won the previous year. Dozens in the audience knew his story that evening. A 46-year-old businessman, blinded at age three in a freak accident, former CIA agent, three-time Paralympic gold champion and world record holder in downhill skiing at speeds faster than 80 miles an hour, world-class entrepreneur on the verge of bringing a portable GPS system to the blind, co-inventor of the first laser turntable, married to a gorgeous blonde, father of two thriving sons. People watched as Mike May moved. He walked with quiet dignity, effortlessly negotiating the obstacle course of tables and chairs, smiling at those he passed, shaking hands along the way. His gait seemed free of regret, his body language devoid of longing. Most people in that room worked with blind people every day, so they knew what it looked like for a blind person to long for vision. There was no longing in his soul to see anything. The holy grail for a blind person is to be able to function as a fully sighted person. And Mike May had nearly achieved it, but his amazing life was about to change. The next day, while accompanying his wife to a routine ophthalmologist appointment, the doctor offhandedly asked if Mike needed a checkup. And just as offhandedly, Mike said, well, sure, why not? Fifteen minutes later, the doctor dropped the bombshell. There was a very new and very experimental pair of surgeries prescribed in rare cases just like his, and it had the potential to give him back his sight 100%. Would he like to come back in for some tests to determine if it might work for him? Now, you would expect a blind person to jump for joy at such a chance. Mike did not. His life was already so full, his, he was happy, and satisfied, not to mention busy at his work and his family. Um, it took him eight months just to decide to come back for the tests. But when he did, the results were definitive. He was a prime candidate for the surgeries. Although there were risks, the promise was unequivocal. After 44 years of total blindness, Mike May could have his opportunity to open his eyes and see the world if he wanted to. What would he choose to do? What would you choose to do? Hmm. If you were suddenly offered a new sense that had the potential of redefining the world as you had come to know it, would you take it? These are the questions that Mike May wrestled with. 
He talked with his wife. He talked with his friends. In particular, he talked to one of his best friends who was also blind. And as it turned out, this friend was also a candidate for these surgeries. Mike concluded that all the reasons that he could think of to either have the surgeries or not have them, all the reasons fell on the side of not having them. The risk of tissue rejection, the risk, risk of cancer caused by the drugs, the lost time in his business, the reasons to say no went on and on. In the history of the world, there have been only a handful of people known to receive sight after a near lifetime of blindness. Although the case studies of those people were available to him, although his blind friend had read them, Mike May, for some reason, chose not to read them. If he had, he would have discovered that in every case, restored sight had been a huge disappointment to the person receiving it, leading to severe and prolonged depression, and nobody knew why. Had Mike May read those studies, he might have decided, as his friend decided, just to leave well enough alone. There was, however, one reason he could think of for saying yes, and in the end, that reason trumped all the others. He was simply curious. In fact, it was his curiosity about the world that had helped propel him to do so much that blindness decreed to be impossible. He had absolutely no desire to see in order to live. But the more he thought about it, the more he knew he had to do it just to find out what seeing was like. So, Mike May chose to see. In the spring of 2001, 44 years after his brief visual world turned to nothing, the bandages came off for a second time and Mike May opened his eyes. He could see, or could he? Blinding light filled his brain, a cacophony of color exploding in his mind, jagged visual sounds screaming at him from every direction that wouldn't go away, it wouldn't shut up, it wouldn't stand down until he closed his eyes. The only way he could make it stop was to close his eyes. He opened them again, and the screaming erupted anew flooding his consciousness and drowning out everything else, a mass of color swirling around. And then, above the, the roar of the brightness, he began to hear it, a voice coming from the pulsating blob of color and saying his name. It was his wife's voice, Jennifer's voice, and it was close to him, saying his name and asking him if he could see her. But this wasn't the Jennifer he knew the swirling, ethereal, radiating glob of brightness and color. Yes, Mike answered, I can see you. Something glistened on the swirling image. Instinctively, he reached up with his fingers to feel it and discovered the wetness of his wife's tears. So this is what it's like to see, thought Mike. Didn't take him long to learn color and he was quick to spot motion. But beyond that, nothing else made sense. It was all very beautiful, what he saw, but everything 
required explanation, and it was also very tiring. After only a few minutes with his, with his eyes open, Mike felt physically exhausted, so he would have to close them. In an odd kind of way, it was when his eyes were open that he felt really blind. He reasoned there was more to sight than merely seeing, that it, would have to take, it was going to take some time to be able to associate reality as he knew it from sightlessness, to associate that reality with this new reality of images now streaming into his brain. So, with the same undaunted courage and grit that had made him so successful as a blind person, Mike resolved that he would learn to see. What he discovered in the coming months was that learning to see was unrelenting hard work, unending intellectual heavy lifting like he had never encountered before in his whole life. He also discovered that sight changed everything. Everything about the world now and how it fit together and how one, along, one got along in it, it was now up for grabs. Whenever he opened his eyes, he would never have imagined it to be that way. He just couldn't conceive of the way the world really was. If what he was looking at was still, given enough time, he could eventually figure it out. Okay, that blue stuff is sky. Those jagged things are mountains. That patchy black and white stuff is snow. And the green blobs are trees. But if the image was moving, his reasoning abilities were left hopelessly in the dust. He just couldn't keep up. He went skiing and wiped out repeatedly. He went home after only two runs, confused and thoroughly bruised. Nothing made sense now that he could see. Clearly, he had greatly misunderstood the world he had so fully mastered as a blind man. He reasoned that if he just gave it enough time and tried harder, his seeing would improve. After six months, it did not. Depression set in, and Mike thought about flushing his anti-rejection drugs down the toilet. Seeing remained for him just a bunch of multicolored shapes on his retinas. He had no face perception, no object recognition, absolutely no depth perception. What a normal person sees as shadows from which we deduce spatial orientation and depth, these to Mike were just shapes of different colors in two dimensions. The doctor said it wasn't his eyes. He was seeing 2020. The problem, they said, had to do with his brain. Mike scheduled an appointment and some vi with some vision scientists to find out what was going on. They would inject dye into his brain and then a use a specialized kind of MRI that can pinpoint the areas of his brain that consumed oxygen as he was presented different images to look at. In other words, they would be able to see the parts of the brain where the seeing was going on. What they discovered was fascinating. In the part of the brain where neurons should be firing to recognize color and motion, things were working exactly as they should be. But in the part of the brain where the neurons should fire when Mike was looking at pictures of faces and visual objects, nothing was happening. There was no oxygen burn whatsoever. The diagnosis was as grim as it was straightforward. Mike May would never 
be able to learn how to see. He simply had no brain function left in those areas of the brain dedicated to seeing. He could still recognize color and motion, though, and here's why. The accident that had blinded Mike happened when he was very young, at an age that scientists say the brain is still very plastic, lots of unassigned neurons available to process all kinds of new data coming in. The ability to distinguish color and track motion are skills that are mastered at a very young age. Some babies can even track motion as, as young as, as two weeks. The color and motion areas of Mike's brain had been sufficiently burned in by the time of the accident that even after 44 years of silence, they essentially sprang back to life as soon as the data started streaming in again. But object recognition is a much more highly developed function. And that's why kids don't start learning to read until they are three or four or five or six years old. The brain simply hasn't developed the skill needed to recognize and distinguish objects as similar yet as critically different as alphabet letters. Faces, nuances of shadow, and pictures of landscapes in books are a lot more complex than alphabet letters. At age three, Mike had billions of neurons busy mastering the process of visual object recognition, but when the data flow was suddenly and permanently interrupted, those neurons took on other functions unrelated to sight, and as Mike got older, his brain hardened that way. It kind of burned in that way because the brain becomes less and less plastic the older we get. Neurons don't reassign nearly so easily as they do when we're young. By age 46, the neurons in Mike's brain would have been, that he would have used for seeing had long ago dedicated themselves irreversibly to other things. On top of that, there are fewer neurons available in other areas of the brain to process new things as the brain gets older and filled up with a lifetime of learning and remembering things, especially insignificant things. And remember, huge amounts of brain function are required for processing vision. So for the first time in his life that Mike could remember, he had been defeated he would never see. I've not come yet to the end of Mike May's story, but I'm nearly there. This is, however, supposed to be a sermon this morning, a spiritual message. So before I finish with Mike, we need at least some wisdom, some wisdom from God's Word. So for the next couple minutes, let me suggest some parallels between Mike May's story and God's Word. And I think these are fascinating. You can think about them this afternoon and decide what you think. I'll share them with you by telling you another story. There was once another man who was stricken by a terrible accident at a very young age and lost his sight as well. That, mind, that man's name is Mankind, and when Mankind was very young, his name was Adam and Eve. One day, long ago, in a garden, Mankind tried an experiment, hoping they could become like God, 
hoping to fully open their eyes so that they could see both good and evil, but the experiment exploded in their faces. Although they could now see evil, what actually happened was that they became blind, so to speak, unable to perceive reality as it really was. Reality as they had been learning to see it in all its perfection and beauty when they walked and talked with God in the garden. And as mankind grew older, he lived with the memory of the fullness of that reality. But as time passed, the memory dimmed and the neurons in mankind's brain that might have developed into mechanisms to process ultimate reality didn't have near as much data coming in anymore, and so many of them became permanently and irreversibly burned in processing other things, things which he should have never had to learn, things like hatred and injustice and greed, things like lust and meanness and war and death. As time went on, Vital neurons that would have been used to process good were used instead to process evil. That was never the, creation, the creator's intention, but that's what mankind chose. And now, mankind has grown old. The brain is not nearly so elastic as it once was. So it's hard to learn new things. It's so hard to see reality now. And so, mankind mostly settles for blindness. It's well documented that people who have been blind for a lifetime really have no sense of sp spatial perception at all, like sighted people do. Distance to a blind person is meaningless. As a blind man, Mike may thought of an airplane or a car to be more like a teletransporter machine out of Star Trek, something you get in for a period of time, and when you emerge, you're someplace else. The fact that great distances have been covered is purely abstract. But the truth is that distance is very real, whether or not one can perceive it. And the truth is that airplanes and cars actually go places. It's obvious to sighted people because they can see things going by outside the window. The visual landscape changes. Now here's the question for us. How much of true reality for us is nothing more than an abstract concept? For example, think about this question. What is holiness? We say, well, holiness is sinlessness. Holiness is being set apart for, from the ordinary, on and on. But what if holiness is way beyond that? What if holiness is a kind of state of being that exists in a place uncontaminated at all by evil, composed and filled with pure goodness? In other words, what if ultimate reality is like holiness? The problem is we live in a world pretty much fully contaminated with evil and we've lived in it so long and have become so adept at living in it that we're not only used to it, but that's the way we perceive it to be. 
and we can't even conceive of what it really is. We think this is normative. It is not. We're like a really smart blind man. We've become quite good at getting around in fallenness, in darkness. We, we, even, we have even surprised ourselves with how much we can accomplish, how much like sighted people we really are. And maybe, like Mike May, we really don't even want to see anymore. Life without sight has become that good for us that we have no idea what we're missing. We have no idea how truly dark it is. But then, every so often, reality breaks in on people. Isaiah 6. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And Isaiah's life was completely changed from that point on. And he was a good guy to begin with. Why is it that whenever somebody in the Bible catches a glimpse of the Lord or even an angel, they fall down on the ground like they're dead? Think Zechariah, think Daniel, think John. Why is it whenever somebody in the Bible gets a glimpse of heaven, think Paul or even Ellen White, they say earth seems so dark and gloomy. Maybe it's because we have such terribly reduced capacity to process reality. We have been blind to it for so long that whenever it breaks in, we just get overloaded. Nowadays, many people have chosen to live without any kind of religious faith. Now, people with faith, at least we believe that there is something beyond what we can immediately touch and see. But those who choose to live with no faith, ultimate reality would make absolutely no sense to them if it were suddenly to break through. So many people are so sure that reality is nothing more than what we human beings can measure with our five senses and the wizardry of our technological tools. Evidence of anything else would just be, wouldn't compute. And how about us, people who claim to be you know, people of faith? Mike May discovered the sighted world to be vastly different and more complex than anything he'd have ever imagined it to be. How will it be for us when Jesus comes? It may be a whole lot different than we think it's going to be. Because although we may be very clever, we don't understand nearly as much about gen genuine reality as we think we do. In fact, we know so very little. 
I wonder if maybe that's why Revelation 20 says there's going to be this time of healing that lasts a thousand years. Maybe it's going to take that much time to learn to perceive reality the way we were intended to way back at the very beginning. I think maybe that thousand years is going to be a very humbling time for all of us. We've been blind and living in darkness for such a long time. And what about right now? Jesus promises people that as they dare to trust him, they will begin to truly see. He told us why he came here. He said he came to preach good news to the poor, to announce freedom for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, release for the oppressed. And Jesus did all those things in a very literal sense when he was here. He made cripples walk and corpses live, and he gave life to many blind people, uh, sight, some who had been blind since birth. I mean, it was one of the identifying marks of the Messiah. People knew that God's Messiah would be able to open the eyes of people who were blind from birth. And he not only opened their eyes, he healed the occipital lobes in their brains so that they could understand the meaning of the images streaming into their, into their brains. But his mission was more than healing physical blindness. He came to heal our blindness to genuine reality to open up our burned-in, hardened minds to what's really real, to help us see again in the fullest sense, which really is what life is all about. And so, our minds have to be renewed. Paul writes, Do not conform anymore to the pattern of this world, of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve perceive, in other words, what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We need a mind healing. The Bible really has quite a lot to say about blindness. It's a fascinating study. New vision is available even for old people, but we have to be, we have to dare to see. We do. Will we? God has promised us new vision if we dare to receive it. And what about Mike May? How did the story finish for him? Did he become tired of seeing? Did he grow despondent and depressed with a visual world which will remain forever for him, flat and two-dimensional? Yes, he did, but only for a while. And then he decided he had a choice. He decided he could return to his world of blindness where he was very comfortable and where he had everything figured out, or he could think of a new way to learn to see. Sighted people use their vision as their primary sense. Much of what comes in through the other senses is subordinated to what we see with our eyes. That's what Mike had been struggling to do up to the time of his MRI. But then they told him he had no hope of ever doing that. And he remained hopeless until a new idea began to germinate in his mind. Maybe he could learn somehow to keep the huge impact of the visual from constantly hijacking his consciousness. Maybe he could learn to subordinate seeing to his other senses, to use hearing as his primary sense. Maybe his brain then would begin to sort it out and he could learn to see all over again like a baby. It was a long shot, but it was worth a try. 
And slowly, it began to work. Mike May truly began to see. Today, he is able to pick out a face out of a group of faces in a room. He no longer trips as much over curbs when he's crossing the street with his eyes open. He's even learned to ski moguls again with his eyes open as long as he pays careful attention to the sound his skis are making. And slowly the visual images are becoming more automatic for him because, in a way, he allowed his mind to be transformed to a new way of thinking. And maybe... For those of us who follow Jesus, that's what faith is all about, allowing our minds to be transformed to a new way of thinking where the really real can break through more and more. At least that's worth thinking about.